Galatians chapter 2, look at the first 10 verses here, and I'll read them. Paul begins, Then fourteen years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And that, because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But of these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man's person. For they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. Here are the first ten verses of chapter 2, and they really are a continuation of the thought of chapter 1, where he says, then 14 years later, he's giving a chronology. And so as we look at that today, we'll see it in the context of what has been said. The devil fights against the church. Certainly he does. And there are two main ways he tries to discourage and defeat believers. And those two ways are persecution and perversion of the truth. Persecution and perversion of the truth. Persecution actually seems to have the effect of purification as gold going through the fire. But perversion of the truth is really the most insidious and seems to have the longest lack, uh, lasting and the most destructive effect. Because if truth is perverted, uh, then the foundation really has been destroyed. And the truth is so important. And Paul is very concerned about the truth of the gospel. Of course, we've seen the occasion for this letter, uh, the fact that the Judaizers were coming in uh, to the church into the, where, the, into, where the Gentiles were you know, worshiping, and here were they, Judaizers, trying to convince that the Gentiles that they needed to really follow the Mosaic law to be saved. And if they didn't, then, well, they couldn't be saved. So they were adding works to salvation. So perversion of the gospel, perversion of the truth, really is what's being battled against here in this book. Now, Paul here is defending, has been defending his authority and his apostleship. And 
as we've looked in the first chapter, he does so by, first of all, recounting his own personal testimony. His personal testimony of meeting the Lord on the road to Damascus. And there in chapter 1, we find that when he met the Lord to the road, uh, on the road to Damascus, he gives the account that he receives the gospel directly from the Lord Jesus Christ by revelation. He did not get it from other men. You go back to chapter 1. He says in verses 11 and 12, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul recounts his own personal testimony of meeting the Lord. Those who were promoting the false gospel, of which he is warning them later on, or earlier here in chapter 1, these false teachers were really, it seems to be that they were evidently trying to portray Paul as a rogue student of the apostles at Jerusalem, or that he had gone astray from what they were teaching. And they were trying to convince the Gentiles that here they were coming in from Jerusalem, these Jews claimed to be Christians, and they were saying, no, no, Paul's, Paul's just trying to soften his message. And the truth is, and by the way, we know the apostles at Jerusalem, and we're speaking for them, and they were trying to pass themselves off as authorities and undermine the gospel message that Paul had been preaching by adding works or keeping the law, keeping the Mosaic law to the faith, to the gospel. Again, they were trying to establish themselves as authorities. And of course, Paul claims to be an apostle. We've gone over that. We've looked at the evidences of his apostleship. But might I uh, direct your attention to a couple of passages in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. I want you to note this. In 1st Corinthians uh, chapter 15, 1st Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 and 10, Paul says this. He says, For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle, or I am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Again, he's referencing his apostleship. And his grace, speaking of God's grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And then verse 11, Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. But I want you to notice Paul's perspective here on his apostleship. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In the first five verses in 2 Corinthians, Paul is speaking somewhat sarcastically here to the church. I mean, there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, a little irony going on here as he's speaking. And he says, Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. Verse 2, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might, be, where, ye might well bear with him. 
For I suppose I was not a whit behind the very chiefest apostles. But though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge, but we have been truly made manifest among you in all things. So here again, Paul speaking of his apostleship. He calls himself in one passage, because I'm really the least of the apostles, not even worthy to be called an apostle because of my history. I persecuted Christ. I persecuted the church. Here he says, I am not a, in any manner behind or less than the very chiefest apostles. Of course, he probably is referring to those who are leading the church at Jerusalem. That is where the gospel went forth. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 11, Paul says here, I am become a fool in glory, and ye have compelled me. For I ought, to be have commend, I ought to have been commended of you. For in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. He goes on to say, Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. And so here he says, I'm compelled to give you my testimony. I'm actually compelled to glory or to share with you what God has done through me. He'd been just speaking about his thorn in the flesh. He'd been speaking about that given to him because of the abundance of revelations that had been given to him. And he goes, you should have, I ought to have been commended of you or recommended. You should bear witness to my testimony. But you forced me to boast, so to speak, to Again, go over my credentials. I think Paul dealt with this everywhere he went. Because, again, not, not just here at Corinth, but also in the churches of Galatia, there were the Jews who were coming around and, again, trying to discredit him, trying to say, hey, listen, Paul is off. He is really gone rogue. He is not teaching the true gospel, which demands that you come under the requirements of the Mosaic Law. Paul was greatly exercised about this, and of course, this is what we see here in the book of Galatians. So Paul, in defending himself, he wants to really show the confirmation of the gospel that he is preaching. It is a gospel of faith, without works, apart from the law, just as he speaks of in Romans chapter 3. The righteousness of God, it comes through the faith of Jesus Christ. It is not by the works of the law. It is not by keeping circumcision. And that is the one issue that comes to the forefront here as we go through this book. And so what Paul does here in chapter 2, and it's a continuation again from chapter 1, he gives a chronology or a detailed um, list here of his limited contacts with the other apostles as proof or in demonstration of the fact that he has not received the gospel from man. But in the end here, we'll see that those apostles were actually in complete agreement with what Paul was preaching. And he wants the Galatians to understand that because these Judaizers were coming in claiming authority, claiming apostolic approval of their message, which was really in contradiction to what Paul was preaching. And so... Again, we read chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, where he says, I certify you that I have not received this gospel of man. I received it by the direct revelation of Jesus Christ. In giving this chronology, he first talks about his own conversion. 
in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He says, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach his name among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. I did not immediately go and get this message from the apostles or from any man, for that matter. And then he says, and of course that is recorded in Acts chapter 9. And we're going to go back and forth a little bit between here and Acts, looking at what Paul says. So he gives his conversion. And then he talks about his first visit to Jerusalem. Verse 18 well, in verse 17, he says, I did not go up to Jerusalem immediately after my conversion. He didn't. It was three years later. He'd gone into Arabia, returned to Damascus, and then he talks about, um, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. So here's, his, here's Paul's first visit to Jerusalem after his conversion. Note that he says, after three years. And really, when we look at the chronology, look at the dates, he's talking about three years from the point of his conversion. Three years from his experience with the Lord Jesus there on the road to Damascus. Now, uh, that visit, that visit is found in Acts chapter 9. So keep your finger there in Galatians. I want you to turn back to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verses 26 through 28. Remember Saul, as we know him, Paul, or Saul in his earlier ministry, earlier life. Saul was there at Damascus, and they were searching for him. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to get rid of him. In verse 26, when the, in verse 25, he escaped from Damascus, being let down by the wall in a basket. In verse 26, and when Saul was come to Jerusalem... He essayed or tried to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. Believe not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way, and he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem, and he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him, which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Then had all the churches uh, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. They had rest. The persecution seemed to subside a bit. And they were edified. Now, so here's Paul's first visit to Jerusalem. And then in Galatians chapter 1, he goes on and he says, verse 21, Afterwards I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And that was Acts 9, verse 30, which when the brethren knew they were trying to kill him, they sent him to Ces brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Tarsus is that city in Cilicia. Antioch is in Syria, but they're both at the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. And so there he is, and he's ministering there uh, for a time in Tarsus. Now, and it says he was unknown by face under the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. In other words, he wasn't seen anywhere in those parts. He was gone. Chapter 2 says, Then 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem. Here is his second visit to Jerusalem. His second visit to Jerusalem. He goes up with Barnabas and takes Titus with him. Now, there are some who 
and this is for this, this. This seems a bit academic because some of you may not understand this, but I want you to see it. There are some who say that well, Paul's second visit to Jerusalem was actually in Acts 15, where they have the Council of Jerusalem and where they discuss this matter of the Judaizers and adding works or circumcision to the law. That's recorded in Acts chapter 15. There are some who say, well, this is Paul's second trip there. If that be the case, then Luke was wrong in his record in chapter 11. But if we go to chapter 11 um, of Acts, Luke's record, look at Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, Barna, uh, Saul was ministering there in Tarsus. He'd been sent up there. And Barnabas was ministering at Antioch. The believers, there were, there were Greeks, Grecians who had believed at Antioch. The word came down to Jerusalem, hey, the Gentiles are receiving the gospel. So they sent Barnabas up to Antioch to check things out, see what was going on. Barnabas begins to minister there and he goes, hey, I need to go get Paul. So he travels over Tarsus and brings Paul, back from Tarsus, to work with him in Antioch. And they were there for quite a while. But in Acts chapter 11, beginning of verse 25, it says, Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth or a great famine throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, and these are talking about the Gentile believers, the Gentile disciples, those who were following the gospel, those at Antioch. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, to discern, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders in Jerusalem, okay, by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. This is Paul or Saul's second trip to Jerusalem. This is the second one recorded. And this is really what we believe is being referenced in chapter 2 of Galatians. If you'll notice also um, at chapter 12, the very next chapter of Acts, Acts 12 and verse 25, talks about Herod uh, taking and uh, he killed, killed James, the brother of John. Make sure you got your Jameses correct. Because James, the brother of the Lord, was the pastor there working in Jerusalem. He was not the one that was killed by Herod. It was James, the brother of John, who was killed. And so James was killed. Then we have the situation where Peter was captured. And then he was miraculously released from prison. And then Herod ends up giving this great oration later on in the chapter and is immediately killed because he gave not God the glory, eaten of worms, and died. The very end of chapter 12 says, But the word of God grew and multiplied. And chapter 12, verse 25 says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So see what has happened here. Paul was in Antioch ministering with Barnabas. There came prophets there and revealed 
the revelation of the Lord revealed that there was going to be a, a dearth or a famine. It did come to pass. When it came to pass, these disciples decided to send relief to the churches in Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas went there with that. We believe that that is exactly what Paul is talking about in chapter 2. At the beginning of this chapter, it is his second visit. Now, there is a third visit, which we'll get to later. And, of course, this is recorded in Acts chapter 15. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren, saying, Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. And then Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem and that's where the Jerusalem Council was held. I believe that's about 50 A.D. Now, back to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Then after 14 years, or 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. So we believe that this is the second trip, that when he went with the relief. And one of the reasons we believe here is it says in verse 2, And I went up by revelation. Well, what was the revelation? Well, fitting in with what Luke has said in the book of Acts, it may be there that the revelation of which he's speaking is that revelation that was going to be a famine. Now, again, there are some people who say, oh, no, this is talking about God, God gave me some special revelation, which, of course, we don't have a record of that, but maybe it could have been, and they're trying to place him there in Acts chapter 15 as his second visit. Paul is being very careful, though, in his chronology. He wants to be very precise in what he is saying. And this is why he says in verse 20 of chapter 1, he says, Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God, I lie not. Again, what is Paul trying to do? He's trying to demonstrate the authenticity and the confirmation of the gospel that he is preaching and the fact that he did not receive it from men. He did not receive it from the apostles at Jerusalem. It was given to him directly by the revelation of Jesus Christ, and he stands on that. Now, here, his second, or this second trip to Jerusalem, 14 years after. Again, Paul seems to be dating his things 14 years after what? Was it 14 years after the three years? No, it's not 14 years after the three years. Again, it's 14 years from his conversion. If you would date it, well, 14 years after the three years after we, where he met Peter, then you would push yourselves up into Acts chapter 15. But I don't believe that's what he's talking about because, again, it would have skipped the second visit, which there is recorded in Luke chapter 11. And you say, well, what's that really got to do with anything? Well, it was important for Paul that he mentioned this and make sure they understood because, again, he's going to be talking about the confirmation of the gospel, the truth. He is so jealous for the truth, and he wants them to truly understand what he has done. Now, in chapter 2, he begins, 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. Paul mentions Titus here in chapter 2, verse 1. And you say, well, just a second. Luke didn't say he took Titus with him. It just says Paul and Barnabas went. You say, oh, could that be a problem? Well, the interesting thing is that Luke, in the whole book of Acts, never once mentions the name of Titus at all, though Paul mentions him quite often in his epistles. In fact, of course, he has a, that letter written to Titus. And so Titus, he calls him my own son in the faith. Titus was one who maybe Paul had actually led to the Lord, definitely one he instructed and discipled. But Luke doesn't mention him. 
And so that doesn't mean that he didn't go, because Luke never mentions Titus in any of Acts, though Paul does. And so um, here is Paul. He comes to Jerusalem. His companions are mentioned there. Barnabas, who was Barnabas? Well, he was a very godly man, full of the Holy Ghost. He was one who had introduced Paul there to the believers when they were afraid of him. Um, He was called the son of consolation. He definitely had the respect of the believers there in Jerusalem. And so Barnabas went with him, and then Titus also. But who was Titus? Titus was not a Jew. Titus was a Gentile. He was a Greek. But he was also, being a Greek, he was uncircumcised. And Paul did not encourage him to be circumcised. And so Paul brings him on this trip with Barnabas. And it almost seems like he brought him deliberately for the very purpose of the confirmation of the gospel message. And we'll see that as we look through this passage. So here he comes, he brings Barnabas, Titus is there also with him. And his purpose for coming was primarily there to bring the relief that was coming because of the famine. But also, while he was there, he wants to address the issue of the gospel. Verse 2 of chapter 2, it says, And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them the gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. So who is Paul speaking of? Well, he's speaking of the leaders of the church. He will name them, James, Peter, and John, in verse 9. But he's speaking about communicating the gospel which he preached to those who were of reputation or those who were leaders in the church, and he did it privately. It wasn't in a big public forum, which again would speak against those who think this was Paul's trip in Acts chapter 15. This was not the big council of the church there in Jerusalem. Here he is, and he's speaking privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. I'm going to address that running in vain in just a moment. Let's look what Paul says here. He comes to verse 2, and then verses 3, 4, and 5. He seems to take a detour. This is actually one of the grammatic, uh, one, a, a grammatical nightmare for Greek scholars, <laughs> the way Paul has written this. He leaves some sentences unfinished. He changes his thought here, and then he comes back to it. And so we have to really walk through this. In, in verse 3, he says he's com- you know, communicating the gospel to those who are leaders in the church there privately. Verse 3 says, But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So here's Titus. Titus is there. He brings him. He's there in Jerusalem with Paul, but he is a Gentile. He's uncircumcised. But what is his testimony? What is his purpose there? What is Paul demonstrating? He is demonstrating through the example of Titus, the ministry of the gospel to the Gentiles. Here is Titus. He's an uncircumcised Gentile who has believed 
he is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he has become a disciple of Christ, just like the believers there in Jerusalem. But he's a Gentile. And here was this great issue coming to a head where the gospel has now been going to the Gentiles, and they're receiving it. What do we do with the Gentiles? The, a lot of the Jewish Christians are saying, they're not like us. We've been keeping the law. You know, that's very important. I mean, it, it has to be important because we've, just, we've always been doing it. It was required, and so we can't just let them, you know, get saved willy-nilly and not do anything. They've they got to be like us. So here they are, but here is Titus, who is not circumcised, yet is in the same class. He is a believer, and it is obvious that he is a believer. So here Paul brings him, and it says here in verse 3, he was not compelled to be circumcised. There's some people who try to say, well, this was somewhere else. No, this was there even at Jerusalem, where here he is confronted with these pillars or these leaders in the church. And there were some who came in right then to listen, to spy out their liberty. It says, came in unawares. There were false brethren there who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. What bondage is he talking about? He's talking about that keeping of the law, being circumcised, becoming a Jew outwardly. And Paul says here in verse 5, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour. If they'd had words that would have subdivided time even smaller, he would have meant not even for a moment. But there an hour really is the smallest word they would use for time. He says, we did not give them the time of day. We would not be subject to them at all. Why? Verse 5 gives his reason. He says that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Again, what is Paul fighting for? He's fighting for the purity of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the gospel message that salvation is by grace through faith alone. There are no works added to the gospel. The law is not required to be saved. And the thing is, the great danger is, if you, if you notice, if you read in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, now again, this was that later council, what was being said? In Acts chapter 15, verse 1, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. What a dogmatic statement. Folks, you can be saved, but you have to also be circumcised or your faith is worthless. I mean, that's quite a statement. Except ye be circumcised after the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Of course, Paul is greatly exercised about this particular teaching, this false gospel that is seen to be creeping into the Gentile churches being brought by those who were from Jerusalem claiming authority from the apostles who were there. And so Paul is very interested in taking care of this matter here. Now, if we go back to verse 2, now remember verses 3, 4, and 5 are talking about his bringing Titus there, the purpose for Titus being there as an example, and while he was there, 
No, he was not constrained to be circumcised. They didn't circumcise him. There were those who wanted him to be, but they did not give them any, they did not heed their instruction. He did not give place by subjecting them for even a moment. Now, back up to verse 2, I went up by revelation and communicated unto them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. Verse 6, But of these who seemed to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man's person. For they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. When you read those verses in English, your first impression is that Paul seems to be almost despising, or to be, it's seeming almost to be speaking disparagingly of those who were the leaders at the Church of Jerusalem. That is not the case, I assure you. That would have really defeated Paul's purpose had he done that, and it would not really have been a good attitude. But what is he actually saying? Note in verse 2, he says, I'm preaching, I'm communicating the gospel to those, he says, privately to those who were of reputation. Okay? There were those who were looked up to and put up on pedestals, these leaders there in the church at Jerusalem, James, Peter, John, the three that he mentioned here. They were seemed to be you know, those of reputation. In verse 6, but of those who seemed to be somewhat. Why is he speaking of them in this manner? He's almost setting aside their reputation or what people think of them. I'll tell you why, because what he's doing is he's combating what is being said. Here are these false teachers coming in saying, oh, but Peter, James, and John, or these leaders, now these are the men we need to listen to, not Paul. These are the true apostles. Paul, he's not really an apostle. You know, he, he, didn't, he was persecuting the church. He wasn't part of the twelve. He wasn't, a, he wasn't even a Christian or was not even a believer when Jesus walked the earth. And they were just trying to disparage Paul and elevate these because of their reputation. Paul says right here, he says, But of those who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, for God accepteth no man's person. They were, the way they were being lifted up, by the false teachers was not in a good way. And so Paul says, you know, what you are by reputation here, God knows. And they who seem to be somewhat, so seem to be somewhat in verse 6, is said twice in verse 2, those who were of reputation. But what he says here, they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. Added nothing to me. Now, if you're looking at that in English and not carefully, you might say, well, you know, whatever, whatever they said, Paul kind of said, that doesn't matter. It doesn't make any difference to me. That's not what he's saying. Okay. He's saying what they did is they did not correct him or add anything to the gospel which he was preaching. They confirmed it, in fact. They confirmed it. It says here, but they who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person. For they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me or did not correct 
the gospel that I am preaching. We are preaching the same gospel. This is why Paul is so adamant that he did not receive his gospel from them. He received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. Now, people say, oh, well, he, he was going there to, to make sure he was preaching the right thing, and he wanted to get confirmation of the apostles. No. Well, let's say, well, wait a minute. But he says there, up in verse 2, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. I want to go make sure I got the gospel message right. That is not why Paul went there. Because what did he say? He says, I certify you, back in chapter 1, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not of man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do not come away with the impression that Paul was a little bit unsure of his gospel, and so he went to correct it, make sure it was tweaked just right, and he had the same message as the apostles in Jerusalem. That is completely false. He is adamant he knows his gospel is correct because he received it directly from the revelation of the risen Lord. In fact, he was the only apostle who received the gospel that way. The other apostles had received it from the Lord while he was on earth. Paul was the only one to receive it from the risen Lord. Paul's not doubting the gospel message that he's preaching. But he says here, lest by, if by any means I should run or had run in vain. What does he mean by that? What has he been doing? He has been preaching the gospel among the Gentiles. They have been receiving it. They have been being saved. The Holy Ghost has been coming upon them just as he did the Jewish believers. But I want you to note a few verses here in chapter 3 and 4. Chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? Verse 2. This only what I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? He says, Are ye so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? In chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says here, he's just talked about them observing days, months, times, and years. They're starting to get into the Jewish festivals and starting to celebrate those things and, and making that part of their, you know, part of their worship. And he says, uh, you observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Labor in vain. So here, Paul is concerned. He wants to make sure he's speaking with these leaders of the church in Jerusalem. His great concern is that he had run or should run in vain. What was his concern? He shares the gospel, which he preaches among the Gentiles. The apostles there agree. Yes, it is salvation by faith alone, and we are not to add the law to it. If they were not in agreement with what Paul was preaching, what would it have caused? It would have caused a huge division in the church. 
there would be the Jewish branch of Christianity, and then there would be the Gentile branch, and there would be a wall there. And Paul would have run in vain. So he wants to make sure here, he says, you need conf- I, want your, I want your confirmation here that you are in agreement that we are standing together on this issue of salvation by faith alone. Because what is being said up where I come from, there are people upcoming saying that they are speaking with your authority, that this is the true gospel, and that, the, that circumcision is required. So here he is concerned that his work would be in vain if the church would be divided. Now, in verse 6, again, at the end, he says, They added nothing. They did not correct or add something that I had been missing from the gospel. And, of course, he clearly anticipated that because he would received it from the Lord. But he goes on in verse 7 and says, But contrarywise... When they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was committed unto Peter, how did they see that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto Paul? Again, I think this has to do with Titus' being there. What had Paul done? He brought an example. Let me demonstrate. Let me show you Titus. Hear his testimony. No, we are not going to have him circumcised. He, in fact, should not be circumcised. There are those who, had, who might have said, and of course, I believe that Timothy and his circumcision was later on. Well, then, Paul, if you didn't circumcise Titus, why did you have Timothy circumcised? And if you remember, who was Timothy? Timothy was, had a Jewish mother, Jewish grandmother, but a Gentile father. And Paul did have Timothy circumcised. But it had nothing to do with his salvation. It had to do with the contextualization of his ministry. He was ministering to Jews. And he was ministering to those who were in the synagogue. He wanted to be able to talk to those, which he would not have had a ministry with them. If they had known he was uncircumcised, the unbelievers would have said no. So Paul had Timothy circumcised, which opened up an avenue of ministry, but it had nothing to do with his salvation, had nothing to do with his being a believer. He was a believer. He'd been brought up, again, with the gospel. He'd not been circumcised as a little baby. He was in a kind of a a mixed family as far as their um, religious outlook. His father was a Greek. His mother was a Jew. But Paul had him circumcised for a completely different reason. But on the other hand... He did not have Titus circumcised because he is making Titus an example and saying, we are not going to add this. If we here in Jerusalem have Titus circumcised and go back to Antioch, then these Judaizers are going to say, well, look at him. He's our trophy. This is proof. This has to be done or you can't be saved. But Paul wants this confirmation because he wants to make sure that here we are on the same page regarding this issue of salvation by faith alone so that we do not divide the church because it wasn't another, it was another gospel. It was a false gospel. It wasn't the truth. And if people would put their faith in Christ plus works, folks, that's not the gospel. And again, how does Satan try to destroy the church? 
He wants to, to wreck the foundations of the truth. Remember Eve in the garden. What did the devil do? Remember his conversation. Listen, the devil knows God's word better than you. And he misuses it and twists it all the time to try to deceive believers. What happened there in the Garden of Eden? There's Eve looking at this fruit, and the devil comes up to her and says, Hi, Eve. That's not, in the, that's not written there, but he, okay. he says to Eve, he says, um, Hey, I heard that God said you uh, couldn't eat of this tree. Couldn't, couldn't eat of any trees. Is this true? He says, well, we can't eat of this, this tree or, or touch it lest we die. Uh, and what does Satan do? He says, no. <laughs> You're not going to die. Really? You're not going to die. Actually, let me explain something to you. You see, if you eat of that tree, you will become like God. No, no, no kidding. He's like, you got to be kidding me. No, Eve, listen to me. Hear me. God is actually holding out on you. If you eat of this tree, you'll become like him and you'll know good and evil. And you just see Eve. She's like, wait a minute. God doesn't want us to be like him. He goes, Satan goes, well, in the day you eat thereof, you will become as God's. Hey, that, that sounds pretty good. Really? And what did he do? He deceives her. Yea, hath God said. Did God really say this? And he twists what God says. Then he contradicts what God says. And he deceives Eve. And what does she do? She eats. And Adam was with her. He was not deceived. He deliberately ate. And it was over. Did they die? Instantly. But what we're talking about is a spiritual death, a separation from God. Yeah, they were still alive physically, but they died spiritually, and they lost that fellowship that they had with God. Now, this is, this is Satan is insidious. He wants to attack the truth. He wants to just corrupt it. If he can add just a little bit of works to salvation, then what? Well, then there's reason to boast. Oh, wait a minute. Then it's not really of grace. And as we read through the New Testament, and especially as we go through epistles, is that not a major, if not the major theme? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not, not of works, is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We read the passages there in 1 Corinthians. It's not works. And Paul was very concerned that his labor would be in vain because of the corruption of the truth. And so here in verse 7, contrarywise, when these leaders here, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, 
Now, that does not mean that Paul only ministered to Gentiles and Peter only ministered to the Jews. No, Peter had been instrumental in the salvation of Cornelius' family. He was a, a centurion from, from Italy. Now, Paul, as his manner was, would go into the synagogues first and preach to the Jews. When they would reject it, he went to the Gentiles. And so it wasn't like Paul only spoke to, to Gentiles and Peter. But here, in general, Peter had more of a ministry with the Jews, and Paul's ministry was primarily toward the Gentiles. And it says, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter. Now that's, again, that's not a gospel that requires one thing for one person and nothing for another. He's talking about the Gentiles as opposed to the Jews there. Verse 8, and this is in parenthesis in my, in my um, translation here, he says, For he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. Who is he referring to? He's obviously referring to God. God has worked with Peter marvelously among the Jews, but God has also been working through me among the Gentiles. Verse 9, And when James, Cephas, that's Peter, when James, Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars. Again, he's speaking of this matter of perspective. Who seemed to be pillars perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. Now I want you to notice there where he says that James, Cephas, and John who seemed to be pillars. You say, well, was this a false putting up of these people on a pedestal? No, but the reputation that was had these Judaizers were using as the basis of their authority. And this is why Paul speaks of them as he does. He's apostle on equal with any of them. But he's speaking of them as they had been referred to. If you look at Ephesians, the very next book, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul speaks about the household of God. He says, And ye are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And so when he refers to these men as being pillars, well, certainly the Bible talks about Christ as a chief cornerstone and the foundation there was built and laid through the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. And then we are being built upon them in the household of God. He's talking about an edifice there being uh, constructed upon a firm foundation. And, of course, where did the apostles get their message? From Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2 speaks about that very clearly. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnestly to things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. And he talks about the gospel. It at first was preached by the Lord. It was delivered unto them which heard him. And God bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. So here was the special ministry in the founding of the church, the special ministry of the apostles. So him referring to them as pillars of the church is not wrong. But again, he's referring to them in this way because of the reputation and their reputation is being used to challenge the gospel that he is preaching. And what happened? What was the, out, the outworking here or the result of his meeting? It says, When they perceived the grace that was given unto me, 
They gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship. They confirmed, yes, we are in 100% agreement with you. There is no difference. There is no schism in the church. The gospel that we are preaching here is still by faith, and it is apart from the law. And what we see here kind of is what we call contextualization. When Paul would preach the gospel to the Gentiles, he wouldn't preach it the same way as if he was preaching to a Jew who grew up under the law. That doesn't mean that he is changing the gospel. But there's a whole different background when you're dealing with a Jew, a background of their understanding of the law, and he has to explain to them what? You look at Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, Paul's great burden for the Jews. What? They are pursuing a righteousness that is of the law. And in doing so, they have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God, the righteousness which is by faith of Jesus Christ. And they going about, he says, to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness which is of faith in Christ. And so here, when Paul would be ministering to the Gentiles, he is definitely not going to allow the law to come in as something that is added. On the other hand, when Peter is preaching to the Jews, they can't put their trust in the law because what does the law do? It renders them condemned. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to them. He is the fulfillment of the law for our righteousness to be accepted with God. It's the righteousness which is received by faith, the righteousness of Christ. And so here again, this great agreement here, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. Verse 10 only they would that we should remember the poor. Remember the poor. The same which I also was forward to do. That word forward, I was already eager to do. And how had Paul demonstrated that? Well, they had just brought this gift, this sustenance, or however it was, whatever it was that the Gentiles had collected for the believers in Jerusalem during this famine. And he was bringing it to them. And really, in the context here, he's talking about the poor saints, most likely there in Jerusalem. Don't forget about these, your poor brothers in Christ in Jerusalem. And remember, the poorest believers were the Jews who were believing and were remaining in Jerusalem. They were cut off from any support from family. How could They couldn't get jobs. It was very difficult for a Jew there in Jerusalem as a convert because they were ostracized from their community, from their family, from really anything that went on there, and they suffered, suffered greater than other believers, even in the Gentile lands. And so they were, they, he said, they would that we should remember the poor, the same which also I was eager to do. Now, this is the first half of this chapter. And the second half, which we'll get to next week, Lord willing, is Paul, I mean, Paul is going to bring up a situation where he actually had to reprove Peter. Okay? And you say, well, why would he bring that up? Well, it goes right along with what Paul is trying to demonstrate. And to demonstrate here, what? The purity of the truth of the gospel. Remember what he said in chapter 1. Though we or an angel from heaven, 
preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached, let him be accursed. And when he says we, he is speaking of the apostles. Whether it be me, Peter, James, John, any of the apostles, where we or anybody else, even an angel from heaven, come and preach to you another gospel, he is to be cursed. It's not the credentials of the messenger. It's the content of the message that means everything. Don't be just impressed by credentials. Again, that's the whole reason that Paul is addressing these apostles there at Jerusalem as those who seem to be somewhat, those who seem to be pillars, those who seem to have reputation. As the Judaizers were coming in, they were referencing them as their authority, saying, oh, we've got this directly from. But it was a different message. Do not be deceived by outward appearances. Don't be left in shock and awe just because of the credentials of the person delivering the message. Focus on the truth. Listen, the, the truth is so important. Scripture says, buy the truth and sell it not. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It's truth that we're after. God has given us the truth, but let us not forget Satan is a master deceiver. Satan does not come in ugly form. No, he comes as something beautiful to behold, something delightful to desire, so that he might deceive, if it were possible, the very elect. But thank God it is not possible, and we are to keep our eyes on the Lord and be jealous for the truth. Listen, there's, there are a lot of churches out there. And a lot of churches you say, well, why don't we just come together? This isn't important. You know, this, isn't, this, this is negotiable. You know, and the thing is, if it's an issue, then it's an issue. It needs to be dealt with. We need to be very careful that we do not accept that which is not true. So let us be careful. Let us be guarded. Let's trust the Lord. Follow Him. Listen, the Holy Spirit, He, he guides us into what? The Bible says He guides us into all truth. If you're being led away from the truth, it is not the Holy Spirit who is leading you. Be warned. Because the Holy Spirit only guides us in truth. And may we be faithful to the truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this passage. And, and Lord, it's kind of a narrative passage that seems just to tell a story. But Lord, the, the details here really show us a deeper picture. Lord, a, a more important struggle, battle that's going on as Paul is so jealous for the truth. And Lord, that the truth not be perverted in any way. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your truth. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who guides us in truth. And Lord, help us to be faithful to the truth. Lord, may we not compromise. Lord, we pray that we would glorify you through our lives, through our testimony. 
We thank you that it is the truth that sets us free. We thank you that it is the truth that goes forth with power to change men's lives. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.